Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Words once uttered by George Santayana, a famous philosopher. It rings true to so, so many events that have grounded red flags in the historical timelines and have found their way into history textbooks. Think about the waves of feminist movements that have developed over time. First the suffragette movement, the women's liberation movement, the black feminist movement and countless more. These are the stories that have been told and retold, each demand asked and repeated for everyone to hear, every event forgotten until revived again by somebody else. Each story has at the heart of it a moral, so that the bad doesn't manifest again, and we can learn from our mistakes. But those of us who read the next chapter of history books know that events do repeat themselves. So why is it that when a second chance presents itself, we ignore it and fall into the vicious cycle of repetition? Today, we consider how to do it differently if we go back in time. My name is Pyle, and this is The Time Machine. Today, we are looking at two stories of rape in Indian history that acted as catalysts for women's movement at those particular times. Starting with a rape case in 1970 and then jumping forward to 2012, where we will follow the stories of two women and the impact they generated. At the end of this podcast, we will ask ourselves just one small question. Did we learn anything? This is India. The date is 26th of March, 1972. 1970s India was riddled with gender inequality class inequality and social stigma towards rape. Women were treated as second-class citizens. Class and caste privilege were normalised. Women's movements were relatively small. Nobody would listen to what a woman had to say and their queries never made it onto the agenda. Hence, it did not come as a surprise when a young tribal girl belonging to a lower class and caste was raped by two policemen. Her name was Mathura. Mathura was brave to speak out and did what very few women did back then. She took her case to court. She wanted to hold someone accountable. Starting from Mathura, if you can look at the Mathura incident and whatever, the mobilization that happened after that with the writing of the open letter. That is the voice of Professor Datta from Jindal Global Law School in Delhi, India. That is exactly what was the demand, as to kind of make the state accountable for its commission as well as its omission. So that was another thread that was being picked up here by the public, by common people. So it wasn't just a feminist group that were coming and kind of making those demands. So that also was on the one hand new and the other hand I guess for the state also it was new because in an issue like that it wasn't part of the public discourse earlier. So I guess that a high-handed nature of you know the state trying to kind of suppress these protests that were happening at that time also had to do with the kind of demands for accountability. This was the first time where women's rights were being talked about on such a scale. At last, people began to see gender-based violence for what it really is, a brutal act of power. Mathura's case was not successful in court, who said that the young girl was a liar and her character was questioned. The ruling sparked protests by women's group across the country. 
Four eminent law professors wrote an open letter of complaint to the Chief Justice about the ruling, outlining the very dangerous precedent they had set in this case. The protests and movements led to amendments to the criminal law in 1983, whose largest impact was to shift the burden of proof to the accused and made custodial rape punishable. This is one case, one wronged victim, one lesson that should have been internalised as a society. So let's ask the question again, did we learn anything? This is India. The date is 16 December 2012. And this is the story of Nirbhaya, which is Hindi for fearless, a name given by the media that found its way onto every headline for the months to follow. A name that still incites emotion in the hearts of many. You may have heard of this being referred to as the bus gang rape of 2012. I don't want to go into the details of the actual event because I don't think that is a productive discussion to have for the purposes of our question. What is significant though is the fact that India witnessed unprecedented outcry and rebellion from the public body. India saw past politics, religion and class. India came together like never before. In Delhi, I know that what happened was that there was a massive outcry and there were huge protests in the weeks that followed. That was the voice of Dr. Krishnan from the University of Oxford. That, those protests again were, were really interesting because I think on the one hand you had, um, you know, the typical groups that go out on protests for any number of issues of this kind. Um, so you had feminists um, across the spectrum and of course feminists aren't sort of one single united body and never are anywhere. Right? Um, so you had feminists kind of across the spectrum on the one hand. But I think what was interesting was that you also had a weird, you know, right-wing presence in those protests. Um, and that was people talking about protection and the need and talking about women in terms of mothers and, and daughters who needed um, safety and so on. There were, you know, calls for the chief minister's resignation. There was um, a lot of anxiety about women's security in Delhi and other metropolitan centres. So, what makes this case so different compared to the Matara case from 1970? We saw the same spark, a violent rape, a similar atmosphere, demands for basic rights of protection against sexual violence was at its height. This was never on the agenda and it was never discussed widely. So why does this case stand out? I think there are two possible features. The first is the fact that this victim is more relatable in the eyes of the modern Indian public. At this time, India was developing rapidly on economic terms. So in a certain sense, what happened with the 2012 incident is also this exceptionalization of, of, the, of the victim figure. That was the voice of Professor Oshik Sarkar from Jindal Global Law School, Delhi, India. Because the protesters were able to identify with her, both in terms of her location in metropolitan Delhi, um, the kind of life she was in, she was returning from a film uh, with her male friend, something that several of these other 
young people who were who, who were joining the protest would uh, readily identify it. So not only do we see the modern woman relating to the victim, we see other protesting groups relating to, and in particular, as Oshik mentions, the young people. But there is a fundamental problem here, and here's why. When rapes occur in, in contexts which are not seen as, you know, um, emblems of um, a modern and progressive India and so on, they're dismissed as the kind of thing that happens in a backward place. I think it's important to think about a very complex um, set of social developments that happened from about the 90s, um, in which I think um, Hindu upper caste women's bodies have become these zones of protection, which of course means that you know those women's bodies are also sites of violence, right? And that those women are not allowed to, you know, determine for themselves what sorts of acts and with whom they're giving consent to. While at the same time, you know, the bodies of Dalit and Muslim women have become kind of, you know, fair game. Um, you know, basically bodies um, against whom when violence occurs, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, and I think these are not unconnected and they're very much part of the same puzzle. But I think there is another group of people that we almost look over when it comes to who is impacted from these protests. We know that the protests impacted feminists and women's groups and also the young people. But what about a third group, the perpetrators? This is something I like to call the perpetrator stereotype. Those who face the brunt of the protests after it's over. You see, the protests and awareness meant that men from certain classes and religions were looked at with a different eye than others. There was a certain level of discrimination and a level of cautiousness that made these people the unheard affected group of protests. The other level of familiarity was also, I guess, the familiarity with the image of the perpetrator. And so there, just the way there is the image of the quintessential you know, victim, there is also an image of the quintessential perpetrator. And, uh, and you know, we write in the, in the article that uh, Delhi police had had a long campaign with hoardings up all over the city uh, saying that you need to be suspicious of uh, your driver or your maid or your watchman so and who are these people these are these are particularly working class migrant laborers who come from outside of the city uh, from very poor backgrounds so there's a certain kind of vilification of of the migrant figure particularly the migrant male is is represented as the miscreant the uh, the troublemaker. In fact, Dr. Krishnan has also experienced something like this in her research. One striking incident for me was that I was uh, traveling in an auto rickshaw with um, a group of college girls. And um, when we got out of the auto rickshaw, the girls were kind of chatting with the auto rickshaw driver. And this is, you know, it's totally normal. But in this case, um, a man who was very clearly, you know, um, middle class and upper caste, um, you know, he was wearing a Brahmin caste mark on his forehead, um, stopped the, you know, girls and me and told us not to chat with people like auto rickshaw drivers because this is how incidents like the Delhi rape happen. Um, so it was really interesting that, you know, um, it was used as a kind of cautionary tale. But there is a second standout feature that can explain why this event was received so differently to the first, and that is location. It happened in the capital of India, it's in the public eye and it's where the public voice will be heard the loudest. 
Does this mean that we saw the same effect elsewhere in the country? I think it's mainly Delhi, honestly, um, in the aftermath of the Delhi rape. This is not to say that women elsewhere didn't go out and protest. Lots of women did. Um, but I think the idea that this was a singular watershed moment is a very Delhi-centered view. Um, because there have been loads of other instances of sexual violence, you know, everywhere else in the country that have catalyzed women at different times. Um, I do think that this one had particular impact because of the fact that there was this ripple effect of protest that spread from Delhi to, you know, a lot of other cities. And what was significant here was that these protests were both leaderless and spontaneous. They required no organisation. It was just people acting together since it was the right thing to do in the name of justice. So, in the short term, were these protests successful? A commonsensical response will be yes, because the state put together the Verma committee in record time. I'm, I mean, for a, for for a country like India, where legislative reforms take, you know, very very long, for the state to be so proactive in the way they went about constituting this committee, inviting recommendations, uh, passing ordinances, and finally the 2013 amendments. Uh, you have only seen something like that happen when the state is interested in passing an anti-terror law. So the fact that they were considering this to be deserving of that importance could be understood as the success of, of the kind of protest and mobilization that took place. But what would also think of this as a as a populist move on the part of the state because despite those recommendations, the 2013 amendments that finally uh, became law uh, did not include some very important recommendations, one being the criminalization of marital rape, second, in establishing command responsibility on the Indian army and armed forces in cases of sexual violence by the armed forces and of course not having the death penalty as a punishment for rape and so so while a, a really important recommendation like the expansion of the definition of rape was included you also had the state in a certain sense thinking about these these amendments through a through a populist frame uh, which is why retaining the death penalty or in, introducing the death penalty was important. It was almost like a performative move on the part of the state to say, tell the public that, see, we are we, we take rape so seriously that we'd like to use our authority to kill those who, who, who commit this crime. Based on what you just said about the state's role in response to the demands made, what should we be expecting from the state from now on? And what kind of relationship do we want to have with the state? The state is not an innocent entity. So we might demand accountability from the state, but while doing that, if we demand certain forms of reform in the criminal law that in effect allows the state to use violence with impunity. Um, or give more power to the state in terms of the trial or prosecution, then are you actually kind of giving more power to the state knowing that it can actually abuse it at some point for its own ends. The other aspect of this is kind of again this age-old dilemma about the role of the state or the relationship of the feminist project with the state. You know, so that relationship has always been a troubled one as to where you want to make it accountable at the same time you know that giving it more power will, will actually kind of harm the feminist project.
So what would you say would be the right approach for feminists to take for their voices to be um, addressed correctly and effectively enough? I actually don't know whether there is a right approach. I think strategizing based on the political context of the time is what in a certain sense determines or motivates uh, feminist groups to uh, frame their demands in a particular way. But I think to remain cautious of massive entities like the state, even when you want the state to do certain things for you, is part of of a certain kind of feminist wisdom. You know, I think a lot of Australian feminists have written around uh, about this and it's, it's a term called state feminism where uh, the state entity itself presents itself as as, as feminist in, in thought and practice. Um, and Indian, Indian feminists have been pretty strongly been divided on this issue. Advocate uh, Flavia Agnes, who's a lawyer in Bombay, um, and also a feminist scholar. She's been so consistent with her argument about demanding stricter punishments from the state to, uh, in response to sexual violence as, as not being a very helpful way to think about, you know, think about how to respond to, to sexual violence. Actually, that realization that you can't completely rely on the criminal law to respond to domestic violence, but you need a civil law that will protect women's rights rather than merely prosecute the wrongdoer, which would be a more effective legal reform. Let's turn to the question we asked ourselves at the start of this podcast. Did we learn anything? Now, let me be real with you here. This is the way I see it. This is what all the protests boil down to. We need more women in power. Hear me out. Looking at women's movement across the world, what do we see? The Malala Fund, women fighting basic human rights. From the US bringing the Me Too movement, which spread globally, that's women fighting for their voices. These struggles are acknowledged, but only some short-term demands are met. Why? I can't help but think of the argument that the academics had made earlier. If the state acknowledges the problem, they become part of the problem, who are now responsible for any act and omission. But sometimes they concede and make some reforms that help to appease the protesters in the short term. But what's the effect of this in the long term? Following the 2012 case, the pressure fizzled out and only sprang back when the rapists were sentenced to capital punishment, which was then postponed to a later date. We see small bursts of outcry here and there, but nothing that is long-term or sustaining. Women need those higher positions to implement changes that will empower other women. We know we cannot rely on the state to carry forward and implement the feminist agenda. And that goes for every issue that needs a protest just to have voices heard. There is no one listening when you talk, so now you need to shout. You need to kick up a fuss and you need to hold someone by the ear and make them listen and change something. So, let me ask you this. If you could go back in time, where would you go? And what would you learn? My name is Pyle, and this was The Time Machine. Whoop.